The ABC's Word Wizard, the Lord of Language. A word in your ear with Professor Rowley Sussex. It's that time of the day. The ABC's Word Wizard, Rowley Sussex, OAM, Emeritus Professor from the School of Languages and Cultures at the University of Queensland, is here, willing and able to talk to you about words, language and linguistics. Rowley, lovely to see you down at the Logan Hyperdome. I have braved the motorway and I've made it. Yeah, this is a fantastic place. Isn't it great? Haven't been here before. Now, we're at what is described as the piazza of the Logan Hyperdome. What makes a piazza a piazza? Oh, it's Italian and it's usually a square with uh, lots and lots of places where you can sit down and have coffee and spaghetti. Oh, this is ticking uh, a lot of boxes because um, we're more in the round than in the square, but I'm seeing lots of food outlets where you could have a coffee, a pizza, but you could also have a hamburger, some sushi, Mexican. I mean, the list goes on. It truly is uh, a place to find a feed from all around the world in the one location. Logan, marvellously multicultural. Um, But it's more about the way that uh, a... An established magazine has approached the English language that you would like to focus our attention this afternoon. I would indeed. And this has to do with The Economist, which is one of the really prestigious British publications. Uh, Not only is their journalism very careful and classy, but their language is great. And one of the people at The Economist called Lane Green has uh, published the latest edition of their Writing with Style. And when The Economist said, this is the way the English language should be, it's worth listening because there are a lot of other places you can go which are not quite so reliable. And some of them are American, which is not to say that they're wrong, but they're different. But how does that fit with us in Australia, Rowley? English English is one thing, but we've got Australian English, don't we? We do. Well, there's something called uh, the, the, I think it's the government government style guide if you look at for agps you'll find it uh, .gov.au and it will tell you about the usage of english in australia but not in as much detail as the economist the one you want for that is pam peters uh, the australian english style guide which is a terrific thing and it it's our language in all its juicy reality the way you, we use it but every time the economist says something about the language They're poised, really, between British and American and, you know, international audience. So they they are actually really worth a look. For example, if you're an American on a committee and you ask them to table a document. Now, for me in, in Australia, and in Britain for that matter, when you table something, you put it on the table and it becomes part of the work of the committee. In America, if you table a document, it means you're putting it aside. So it's no longer going to be part of your minutes or anything else. It's been, it's been di- either discarded or sidelined in some. Now, this is exactly the opposite. If you don't know what you're doing, you can make dreadful mistakes. And now that we do commut- committees by Zoom internationally, you need to have a chair who knows that there is mm. a difference between the British and the non-British one. I wonder what some of the other examples are, Rolly. According to The Economist, what are some of the other observations about how English English should be used? Well, one that I always need to remind myself about is dirt. Oh? Dirt in, in our English is bad stuff, right? And you want to wash it off. And your child is dirty and it needs to be cleaned. But in America, if you've got some seeds or some seedlings and you want to make them grow, you put them in the dirt. Not the soil. Not the soil. Hmm. 
Now, soil or earth is what we would use. Dirt is the American one. And so, again, you, if, if you hear someone who's a, a gardener in America and they're putting stuff in the dirt, they're not downgrading or putting these you know, in improper material. It's just the way they do things. Like if I was to plant a, a nice new um, set of flowers, pelargoniums perhaps, ah. uh, I would be planting the pelargoniums. Pelagoniums in the in the in the dirt. That's right. But in the soil. In the soil here, and in fact, okay. pelagoniums. Some people might think they ought to be pelagonia. Oh. But no, they should be pelagoniums, and mm. uh, the 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 economist will tell you so. Is Here's it soccer one. or football in the economist, Rolly? Sorry. Soccer or football? Uh, they tend to talk in terms of football because mm-hmm. the round ball game dominates in Europe I see. and the default word is football. football and if you want to talk about anything with an oblong ball then it's going to be rugby or that strange or rugby. Thing, Australian <laughs> rules. <yes. laughs> okay. Um, can I take you to Gladstone, Rolly? Yes. Uh, David has a question for you about how we should pronounce uh, compare... Now, I'm going to have to say it out loud so I might be wrong. Comparable, incomparable or Comparable, incomparable. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to David, the Sisters of Mercy who educated him would be apoplectic with the current pronunciation out there. Uh, or maybe they were wrong, but I have no idea which is the current and which is the correct way. So, rolling. Oh, I like apoplexy. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant word. Okay. Uh, incomparable and comparable. But the problem is that in English you've got a shorter word, compare. So, compare, but incomparable. And this happens, English does this a great, great deal. Uh, where if you get a longer word and it shifts the stress or the pronunciation of the vowel, you've got some extra memory work to do to remember that there is a difference between the short firm and the long one. And what is happening very often, for example, the British are now, have now decided that uh, distribute and distribution is too hard. They're going to have distribute and distribution. So you, you make a new stress, you put it in a new place, but you make things a lot simpler because there's only one to remember. So the sisters were right. Uh, it should be comparable and incomparable. But you will hear an awful lot of comparable now mm. because people think, oh, well, compare, it's got to be like that. And yeah. it isn't. Okay. That's probably a good one for yeah. me to, to note. Uh, Guido at Castaways Beach. G'day, Guido. What would you like to know? Oh, oh hello, Kat. Rowley. Hello there. Uh, many years ago, when I was at universities, many, many years ago, uh, we did a subject called preventive dentistry. Yes. Now, uh, I imagine preventive was a pretty good adjective uh, following on from the noun prevention or the verb prevent. Yes. But all we seem to hear these days is preventative. Yes. Where did that come from? Okay, there are a lot of these around where uh, people have actually uh, generated a new form which wasn't there before. And that's really confusing because after a while you hear two different forms around. You're not quite sure which one you should follow. And if you hear one from a person you think is authoritative or worth imitating, that one gets a lot of traction and it persists. And after that, it's quite difficult to, un- to unhorse it. Uh, one that has been around for quite a while is Orient and Orientate, which is similar. Uh, it used to be Orient, which meant that you really lined up a church towards the east, which is the Orient. And that was the way Orient happened. But then we got a noun, orientation. So people thought, hang on, if there's orientation, we ought to have a verb to orientate. Okay. And so that got a lot of, a lot of uh, airtime, particularly in America. Uh, Pam Peters has done some numbers on this for Australian English. And I'm pleased to say that Orient is, learning, uh, is winning about eight to one. 
But I'm afraid that Orientate is on the way up. Rolly Wynnum is where we travel to next, uh, where Diana has a question for you. Hello, Diana. What would you like to know? Hello, Kat. Well, I want to go into uh, Rolly's great extensive brain matter. <laughs> when we all know what uh, doing a Bradbury is, and it's like we've now, if, if you say you've done a Bradbury, you've come from behind and won. Are there any other surnames that have that sort of functionality that has meaning. I can't think of any others. Rolly might know. I don't think there are. Not like that one. And of course, uh, Stephen Bradbury was in a weird position. He was running last in the skating event and everybody else fell over on the last turn and he was the only one left standing. So he sailed through and won. And it became, at least for us, but not for the other countries whose skaters had fallen over, uh, a regular term. So you do a Bradbury. I don't think there are any others quite that. There are other names in games. Uh, if you happen to play competition bridges, I used to once. A Yabra uh, is a, a, a hand where you've yes. got no, uh, no honour card. So there's no jacks and no queens and no kings and so on. Uh, so there are a few like that. They're often very specific to particular sports. But Bradbury has, has, has jumped out of the skating and into everything where you, someone who is an unexpected winner from behind somehow wins. Lovely. Excellent question, Diana. Thank you so very much. Thank 1300 222612 is the telephone number. That's 1300 222612. Rolly? I've got one for you. Since we're in the middle of so much food, which is very tantalising, frankly, what is the difference between a gourmand and a gourmet? Oh, boy. A gourmand? One of them you really don't want to be and the I, other one you rather might. I think if you're a gourmand, that means you are someone who um, has an appreciation of fine food. Is that right? Or, no? Oh, okay. Sorry, Kat. <laughs> uh, well, that's why you're the lord of language and I just sit here politely. Every, I, I, I shouldn't have put it like that. It was unfair. No, these two words are very, very often mixed up. But in French, uh -huh. a gourmet is a connoisseur of food. I see. And, you know, someone who knows about wine and about French cooking and so on. Which, by the way, you can get in the Tour de France at the moment. There's a, a, a chef called Brahimi who is telling you how to make things like coco vin in the French way. Lovely. But a gourmand, I'm afraid, is a glutton. Oh, I mean, I would... Well, you, you and I would probably have a bad day. <laughs> Maybe we, that we are. A little column A, a little column B there, Rolly. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Kapalabar. Now, Annie standing by with a question for you, Rolly. Go ahead, Annie. Good day. Hello, good afternoon, um, Rolly and Kat. Hi. My question is, um, what is more correct? Because I know people say both. Could have, would have, should have, mm -hmm. could of, would of, should of, and then in the written form, they sometimes shorten that to like C-O-U-L-D apostrophe V-E, which insinuates that it's could have. Mm -hmm. So which is more correct or are both correct? Okay. The only written one that as is correct is the have. So would have, should have, and so on, with H-A-V-E properly written out. Now, the trouble, of course, is that when you're talking... You tend to swallow a bit of the H-A-V-E, and we say would've. Yes. Which sounds Correct. exactly the same way as a, a box of birds. Box of birds. Of, of, all right? And people, if they yes. haven't been taught this in school, think that the apostrophe V-E and the O-F are the same thing, and they get them dreadfully mixed up. So what, the only one that you should or could have is could've with an H-A-V-E, 
or apostrophe VE if you're representing how people talk. But writing OF is a dreadful solecism, there's a word for you, and absolutely should not be perpetrated. There you go. Thank you, thank you so very much. Out in apoplexy. Very good at tidying. We do apoplexy. We do. Well, apoplexy is fun. It's a it's a delicious sounding word. I could also almost go as far as saying it's scrum diddly umptious. Oh, rolly. Uh, in well, fact, I just did. So there we go. You do scrum diddly umptious. Do you know what you've just done? What have I done? It's called tamesis. Oh dear. Is no, that no, contagious? No, oh, okay. It's good. Have, have yeah. some tamesis. Tamesis. T m e s i s comes from the Greek word to cut, and it means you've chopped a verb, uh, chopped a word, and put yes. something in the middle of it. Oh. Right, so scrum diddly umptious is scrumptious with diddly popped in the middle. <laughs> it's a bit like done in Tumba Bloody Rumba Shooting Kanker Bloody Ruse. Oh. It was a very, very risky bit of poetry when it first came out in the 50s or so. But again, Tumba Rumba with yes. bloody in the middle is yes. an example of Tamesis. There you go. Rolly Sussex, the Lord of Language on ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland. Let me take you to Paddington, Rolly. Douglas is uh, is stuck on a crossword, are you? Douglas, what's the trouble, mate? Yeah. Uh, hello, Cat and Rolly. Um, we're trying to do a crossword puzzle the other day and we were stuck on a, a four... The answer's a four-letter word starting with C for Charlie, but the clue was invent a new word. And I'm glad if I can find an answer. <laughs> Rolly invents a new word starting with C for Charlie, and we're sure that it's a C word, are we? Mm. Oh, well, it, the, other, the, cross, the C comes from process, and I think that's the only answer I could get for that clue. Oh. <laughs> right. I'm, I must admit that with things like crosswords and wordles, with, if I get any, any close to one, it becomes addictive, and I just can't put it down. <laughs> and a lot of other things I've got to do don't get done, so I'm, I'm not your best person. Mm, the other right. thing about crosswords, of course, is that it depends which newspaper one you're doing. Yes. The people who set them, like, like um, they have a, a particular kind of cast of mind, and you get used to reading it after a while. But if you don't, yes. if, you, if you go to another newspaper or another book of crosswords, you'll mm. find that you're suddenly adrift. Well, Peter Scott on the tools of the out-of-control control room here at the outside broadcast is wondering whether it's coin. It probably is now. Yes, well done, Peter. There's a man sure, who knows. He's good, now yeah. pretending it wasn't his suggestion. Is a man uh, who Ashwin Senkar, who's in the, on the tools in the out-of-control control room back at the studio. Ashwin had suggested coin and is possibly due credit there. Thank you very much, yes. Ashwin. Good luck uh, with go, the Douglas. crossword. Douglas, Barbara. Barbara at Toowoomba, are you there? Barbara, what would you like to know? Uh, G'day, Kat and Rolly. Um, a couple of words that um, have come to my attention lately is when somebody died, we, I'm sure we used to say bail and not valet. Mm-hmm. And the other one is seasonable. I didn't think seasonable was a word, but I've heard a lot of people saying it lately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, vale is, is the only correct one, not vale. Uh, vale, okay. vale is Latin and it means farewell. And salve, S-A-L-V-E, uh, is uh, I greet you, all right, or greetings. Right. So okay. the, the, way you, the place you hear V-A-L-E, and a lot of people do say vale, but I'm afraid it's not right, uh, is at okay. uh, funerals where you're, you're making a... Um, a speech uh, in honour of the person who's passed on. Um, seasonable is fine, something which suits the season. Uh, the the yeah. weather today is perfectly seasonable for Brisbane in winter. It's 24 degrees and brilliant sun, and where could it be better? Yeah. Oh, it's perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Rolly, you began our conversation this afternoon by addressing the style guide put mm. forth by the um, noted Honest, British yeah. journal the Economist. I just wonder, were there any other you know, observations that you had oh, yes. about their guide that we wanted to pay attention to? Well, uh, 
a lot of newspapers and you know, organizations like the ABC have style guides or people who are watching out for style and trying to help you when you get things wrong and stumble. But, for example, hyphens are a, a damn nuisance. Uh, the Oxford Shorter Dictionary, which came out oh, about six, seven years ago, took the hyphen out of 15,000 words. So the hyphen is, is in trouble. But it is still used in a thing like, well, let, let's say we've got, let's say you have first-hand knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, this knowledge can't be considered first-hand. Now, if it's after the verb, can't be considered first-hand, you usually don't have a hyphen. But if you have two words joined together as a modifier before a noun, first-hand knowledge, okay, then you've got all these words fighting for, for position before the noun, you'd normally put a hyphen in there. Now, the trouble is that you've got to realize that hyphens persist in British English a lot longer than they do in American English. So the Americans tend to throw away the hyphen, join the words up, and that's done. Um, so a lot of things which are now internationally uh, just short, like declassified and preoccupied and so on, you've got a short prefix, we've got rid of the hyphen there entirely. It still turns up in cooperate, because otherwise people think, well, that might be cooperate which is plausible but wrong. And, in fact, the New Yorker in New York actually writes co, and then the next O has two dots on the top, which is the, no, it's called an umlaut in German. Uh, but, and so they're the only place that does that. But apart from that, you know, if you think about it, we really had, should have zoology, not zoology, because mm. zoo, it's zo. Mm -hmm. But that's what happens with the hyphen, very important. The apostrophe, our dear friend, the apostrophe, is in desperate strife. There used to be a society for the preservation of the apostrophe in England. And then the person running it had had enough and gave up and it stopped. Oh but uh, there used to be a rule which said, if a word ends in S, um, put, put apostrophe for a possessive, and if it doesn't, put apostrophe S. So the book's spine. But th then there were all sorts of exceptions like uh, Dickens's plays or Dickens' plays, was it S apostrophe or S apostrophe S? Was it Euripides' plays? Was it Jesus's sayings or mm. Jesus' sayings? So they've now decided that whatever the word ends in, you have apostrophe S for the singular. Uh, and so it's Jesus's and Dickens's and so on, even though it feels like a mouthful of S's. Um, one where I'd probably make an exception is my name because there's too many S's already. <laughs> Sussexes, far too many. But these are, are really worth a look because they, there are things like the serial comma. Let's say I'm going down the road here and I'm going to buy some apples, comma, pears, comma, and grapes. Apples, comma, pears, comma, and grapes. Having the extra comma after and, sorry, before and, is called the serial comma or the Oxford comma. And the economist said, we don't do it. Oh, how's that? But it All recently right. has changed in England. Okay. Uh, so much uh, to learn each and every week when you join us for a word in our ears, our collective ears, Rolly. There's just an S on the end, no apostrophe there. Um, <clears throat> let's go to Redcliffe now. Uh, Stephen. Hello, Stephen. What would you like to know? Hello there. How are you, Kate? And Good, thank Kat, you. How are you, Rolly? We're My grandfather passed away a number of years ago, but he used to play me Scrabble. And I never won a game against him because he used to carry around a little pocket off the dictionary and was told <laughs> by his father that he should learn a new word each day. Yes. I found that quite amusing until one day he explained to me that there was an Australian phonetic dictionary. I wonder if you might help me if I give you some examples and help me whether or not you know where it originated from. He used to say, 
A for horses. The next one was B for mutton. Yep, C for yourself. Um, D for rental. Yes. D for vessant. Yes. G for police. Yes. Ivan Novella. Have you heard of it? And oh, do you yes. know where it came from? Uh, these, these originated in Britain, and there are various versions some of which are a bit rude, which we won't go into here. Um, but it's a way of um, poking fun at people who learn spelling by, by doing, you know, A for apple, B for by bean or whatever. Uh, and it's uh, another way of playing lang with language. I rather like it, actually, uh, because, uh, you know, F for vessence. Well, you think, you know, there's, there's, it almost makes it, but not quite. So they're, they're part of language play. They've been around at least 100 years. And uh, they began, I believe, somewhere in Britain, probably in the east end of London. He told me that it was quite common during World War I amongst the troops. It was. And they used to play a lot with that. If you want, by the way, to have a look at World War I talk, there's a great book by someone called Dowling called Digger Dialects. And they tell you how the early, uh, the early uh, soldiers over there picked up things like a brass razoo. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> which is probably a sou, S-O-U, which was a hundredth part of a franc in those days. And, and plonk for wine, which probably came from vin blanc, B-L-A-N-C, which is the French for white wine. I love that. And from blanc, we got plonk. Very few of our diggers knew any French, but they heard it and they represented it and kept it going and gave us a new word. Jolly good, Stephen go. at Redcliffe. Thank you. Uh, to Mackay, I think last on our tour of this great state of Queensland uh, to discuss language and linguistics this afternoon. Peter, you're representing all of Mackay uh, with your question. Um, what would you like to say or observe? Pete, hello. Uh, you had someone on earlier uh, gave you the name um, Bradbury. Yes. And you couldn't think of anything else. Well, um, quite often we used to use the word skase. You're doing a skase, you know, Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's always been around, uh, as far as I know, you know, ever since he has got absconded to one island over there, Majuro, whatever it was called over in the... Spain. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Doing they, a Yeah. Oh, yeah. And these are called Thanks. eponyms. We talked about them last week, and I didn't, I'd forgotten about scafe. And I just thought of another one in sport, Mankad. Oh. M-A-N-K-A-D, who was a cricketer who... Now, if you're bowling and the batsman at your end, not, not, not the batsman on strike, but at your end, strays out of the crease. It is legal for you to use the ball to knock the bales off and they can be run out. It's thought to be not quite in the spirit of the game and you're meant to give the batsman one warning and say, look, if you do that again, I'm going to get you out and run out. But that was a mancad named after the person who did it and it became a very, very... And, of course, there's the Trevor Chapel underarm bowl, which New Zealanders will never let us forget. No, quite right. OK. Uh, Professor Rowley Sussex, um, I think we're about due for your last word. Memory is what tells a man that his, his wedding anniversary was yesterday. <laughs> pleasure and a privilege as ever, Professor. Thank you so very much. Thanks, Kat. I'll be back next week.